Hello and welcome to the Methods podcast. My name is Sarah Hanna and today I'm joined by Himani Gupta and Gordon Co to celebrate Ada Lovelace Day. This podcast was recorded on the 26th of September. Thank you both for joining the podcast on Ada Lovelace Day. Gordon, Himani, could you both give us an introduction to who you are and your roles? My name is Gordon Cole. I am the Digital Director at Methods. So I look after service design, content design, user research and design. Thanks, Gordon. Hi, I'm Himani Gupta. I'm Head of Delivery in Methods and I make sure that we are delivering on quality, meeting our contractual commitments for our clients. I'm passionate about raising standards of our uh, our delivery and our quality and I manage delivery managers, business analysts among the rest of the team. So very nice to be here. As mentioned, you've joined us on Ada Lovelace Day. It's a day which celebrates the international achievements of women in science and technology, but behind this are the remarkable achievements of the very first programmer. Hamani, how much do you know about Ada Lovelace? Is she someone who was mentioned during your upbringing or education? I'll be honest, I wasn't aware of her name, Sarah, until you and I talked, which is when I googled her and I was quite surprised to see her association with Charles Babbage, who I knew since my childhood. I have an engineering background, so I have studied STEM, computer science. So I was introduced to Charles Babbage as part of growing up, but quite surprised I didn't have that female role model, didn't know about Ada. I studied computer science and I've had a very similar experience where I knew who Charles Babbage was. I hadn't really heard of Ada, so I'm excited today to be able to learn more. Gord, you've come to the podcast today as our Ada expert. Could you tell us what her early life was like? Thanks, Sarah Hannah. Yes, Ada's parents were George Gordon Byron, the famous poet Lord Byron, and Annabella Milbank. They got married in 1815 when Byron was 27, Annabella was 23. And very shortly after getting married, they had a daughter and Byron chose the name Ada for her. He thought it was short, to the point, poetic. So Ada Byron, born the 10th of December 1815, she was the only legitimate daughter of these two, though Byron did have other children outside of marriage. And to explain who Ada then became, we need to understand her father and her mother a little bit more. So Lord Byron left his wife almost immediately, five weeks after Ada was born, and they'd only been married earlier that year. And this left Annabella Milbank, who was a, a highly moral woman. Byron called her the princess of parallelograms. She was very intelligent, very mathematically minded thinking that Byron was terrible. She was worried her daughter Ada might grow up in the image of her father. So to try and stop this, she ensured that Ada's education would cover things like non-fiction English literature, geography, botany, mathematics, physics, chemistry, nothing that involved emotions. The thing that was absolutely banned in Ada's education was poetry to try and suppress her father's side. So Ada, unusual for a woman in early Victorian era, had a really rational, scientific upbringing. So you've just mentioned that getting women into STEM was something rare in the Victorian era. Over a hundred years later, Hermani, do you think this is something society still struggles with? I've seen over the last few years a lot more awareness and talking about STEM, a lot more women getting into STEM. But I do feel that there are couple of challenges that we women face in this career path. I think there's not a lot of role models or mentoring are available to young people starting in women, young women. 
And even at a career in the professional workplace, I think there's not a lot of talk about STEM career progression or area of expertise, not a lot of subject matter experts, mentors available for people to just sound their ideas. So I think uh, lack of mentorship can be a deterrent and it's a challenge for a lot of women, I would say, to enter and progress in this field. And I don't know if it's just with women, but I think sometimes women suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> so I think we women should stop doubting our abilities. We don't have to be experts in everything and we should just ask questions. So I think very early on in career, it's very important for young people, young women to have those mentors. They can use their sounding boards. It helps build their confidence. So, so, so I think, yeah, I think mentoring, lack of mentorship is probably, to me, it's probably a key challenge in this area. You kind of answered my next question, which is, do you think businesses can do anything to help with these challenges? You mentioned yeah. mentoring. Is there anything else you think that would be helpful? I think as businesses, we can also partner with other independent organizations. There are a lot of networks outside, a lot of companies that focus on STEM development, recruitment, advice on how people can progress in this career. So we can actually have partnerships, form partnerships with other organizations. And even some, we could even select some charity organizations to part, partner with where we can go talk in schools to young women about what are the possibilities in STEM area and really make it more attractive for them to enter in STEM. It, it is quite exciting and yeah, it, it's an interesting You mentioned you come from an engineering background. Having a look back to that, is there anything that you wish was put in place to be able to help you? I would say more more practical knowledge and information about STEM. I think it would have attracted me more and probably would have attracted me more to study STEM if I knew how I could apply it in our daily lives because there's so many concepts we use right from a STEM field which which I think we should really start in young early lives of education so at school level. I think a lot of practical information to apply those concepts so people can actually see what's the value in learning and studying STEM. Good. We know how and why Ada became interested in STEM, but what exactly did she find out that was revolutionary? Well, she came from sort of aristocratic descent and so she had access to senior mathematicians in the field. She became really good friends with with Charles Babbage who at the time was a, a renowned mathematician. I think she met him at a, a socialite party of some sort and she was fascinated by his work. He invited her to his house to see an invention that he'd come up with called the difference machine which was a, a tower of numbered wheels that could make calculations when you turned the handle. It was a prototype, it was it was an alpha, so not fully complete, but it fascinated Ada and she then began a correspondence for years and years with Babbage about its potential along that kind of supplemented her own studies. In the 1830s, in the late 1830s though, she became a bit more occupied by, she met another gentleman from high society called uh, William King, uh, who later became the Earl of Lovelace, hence Ada Lovelace. And by the early 1840s, she'd had three children, but of course, they had enough money, they could afford governesses and nursemaids and so on. So she decided she'd like to get back into mathematics. And it was then that Babbage, without formally publishing it anywhere, had come up with the idea of the analytical engine, which was this 
hook and great machine with thousands and thousands of cogwheels that could perform more functions with better accuracy. It's basically an an automatic mechanical digital computer, although it hadn't been built. Babbage travelled across to Torino to present to a group of Italian scientists this account of the engine. And there was a young Italian mathematician there, Luigi Federico Menabre, who later became prime minister of Italy, who he created an, an account from his notes, an account of the principles of this analytical engine, which he then published in 1842 in French. It was, it was Ada who then got hold of a copy of the French article and she decided she could rework it as a translator and add a lot to it, do it better and explain it to an English audience. So if this was Babbage's work and she translated, what was it about her version that has left a legacy? So this is how she ultimately becomes classified as the first computer programmer. She understood in her article every nuance of Babbage's design and more importantly, that let her imagination run free and she started to consider the possibilities of what that could mean. Her notes ask if this wonderful engine of Babbage's could compose music. She likened the engine to weaving algebraic patterns to, to a jacquard loom weaving flowers and leaves. And she actually wrote a programme, uh, arguably the world's first computer programme, though it was never run, called Note G, which calculated Bernoulli numbers, which is a way of calculating integers to different powers. And, and she designed it around how mathematical operations could be organised into groupings that could be repeated. She invented the loop, taking a, a, a group of calculations that could then, then go again and again and again. She said at the time, the science of operations as derived from mathematics more especially is a science of itself and has its own abstract truth and value. She recognised for the first time a new science that was distinct from maths with incredible possibilities, the science of computing. I feel like she was a woman that clearly was very forward thinking and very innovative and unique for her kind, even though that probably sounded quite outrageous to say that, that this machine could, could compose music. Hermani has said that there's a lot to learn from Ada. Do you think at Methods that the work that we do here is at all innovative and forward thinking? Very good question. I think I'll, I'll start by saying what do we mean by innovation, right? So what to me what innovation is not is it's not always a shiny piece of toy or a cool tech. It's how we can something in a new or a different way so we can reuse things, how we can ma make things more useful to deliver more relevant and desired outcomes for customers and for our clients. So it's not always using a shiny piece of toy or tech, like I tell everyone. Um, methods As methods, we do work with a lot of different clients, a lot of customers. Everybody has got a different level of complexity and nature of work varies. So I think our level of innovation varies with, with every client. In certain cases, we do a lot of process innovation. So with one client, we are actually educating them how they can organize and structure themselves better. It sounds very simple, <laughs> how to organize yourselves, but we're introducing new concepts such as two pizza teams. So when you're thinking of teams, when you think about size, optimal size of a team is that you can feed them with two pizzas. What it helps with is with effective decision making and communication flows. So that's that's an example of process innovation and business model innovation we are doing with a client. We do a lot of product innovation as well. We are working with a lot of strategic clients. You'll hear them in the news, especially in pandemic. We are helping them build products that is used by 
all the citizens in the country. So Census being one of them, we are a key partner to develop those products and new features. We use different technologies as well in cloud. We, we do a lot of work in cloud development and delivery for our clients. And I guess anybody can use clouds. Anybody can use AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, but it's how effectively to use it to actually optimize costs. So FinOps is another area of helping them to innovate and deliver value. So, so yeah, so as methods, I, I feel we do different, different levels of innovation with different client. Not every client, uh, uh, they are at different points in their journey. So, so we just need to help them uh, get through that innovation journey. We are forward-looking. We are always scanning industry trends, what's happening in the market and how we can use those top tech trends, use it with our clients. So yeah, but I guess there's a lot more we could be, we can do for our clients. Speaking of client, Gore, didn't you mention working with a client and going to Downing Street to find Ada? We, had, we did a project, we ran a project with the cabinet office called Ethnicity Facts and Figures a few years ago, probably 2017, 2018 time. And it was, um, it, it was all about understanding the, the experience of different ethnicities in the public sector, in public services, I should say. And when we finished, when we completed the project, we were invited to Downing Street. Now, it wasn't wasn't me, it was, uh, it was some of our team were invited to Downing Street. And lo and behold, so we have a photograph of, of the team taken underneath the portrait of Ada Lovelace that hangs in one of the rooms in Downing Street. She's very related to our work then. Himani, I think Ada took on a big risk in writing out this huge article for potentially no one to read it. Do you think there is room at Methods for us to take risks? I think we take calculated risks, which is quite important yeah, for a company. We are working in public services, so our actions can have significant impact on citizens' lives through our client work. Are we taking enough risks? Probably we could push boundaries with our clients a little bit more. To give an example, when it comes to delivery models, how should we deliver, where we should deliver with our clients, we can push the boundaries with them in trusting technology a little bit more in public service so they can really reap all the benefits of the tech trends that, that are coming up. To give you an example, so I was talking about cloud. We do a lot of cloud work with our clients and I said uh, anybody can, can use cloud, right? Uh, you and I can go and uh, start using cloud, but it's like how do we as a client, how do they optimize the usage of cloud. So there's an area called FinOps where basically we help the clients optimize their spend and to really use the cloud resources effectively and in a better way, which in turn means there are more efficiencies for them. Their people are more productive. They can spend time on more value-added activities and they can then reinforce those savings into other initiatives. So yeah, so that's one example of taking risk because it's always difficult to tell the client, hey, we don't think you're doing this the right way. So it's how we message it and how we tell the client and then also show to them, you know, where they, where they were going wrong and showing the value to them. It is risky because sometimes, sometimes it can turn out that there's not much room for optimization, but then again, it's a validation whether the client is doing certain thing in the right way or not and how much we can help them. Good. Do you mind telling us about the end of Ada's life? So sadly in the 1850s, doctors told Ada that she had cancer, probably cervical cancer from, from what we know now. And by August 1852, 
she wrote, I begin to understand death, which is going on quietly and gradually every minute and will never be a thing of one particular moment. And on August the 19th, she asked Babbage's friend Charles Dickens to visit and read her an account of death from one of his books. She seemed close to death, but she hung on in great pain for nearly three more months, finally dying on November the 27th in 1852 at the age of 36. Florence Nightingale, nursing pioneer and friend of Ada's, wrote, they said she could not possibly have lived so long were it not for the tremendous vitality of the brain that would not die. And much to her mother's dismay, she had herself buried in the Byron family vault next to her father, who, like her, died at age 36. And it wasn't until a hundred years later that her work was used and referenced, and her deep understanding of what computation is have influenced mathematicians and scientists and computer programmers ever since, from Alan Turing's test for independent thought, in which he, argue, he actually argued against Lovelace, to having a computer language named after her in the 1970s. She is rightly known now as a pioneer of modern computer science. I also think that my dying wish would be for Charles Dickens to come and read me. And it seems to have loads of, loads of friends that I've heard of. Which famous people would you like to come and visit you on your deathbed and read to you about death? <laughs> I think I would choose Ian McEwan. Oh, wow, okay. And you, Stephen King. Oh, that's a good one. Just, well, just about every book I own is a Stephen King book, so I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm trapped in that world. Would he not just scare you into death? Yeah, but that would be, that'd be, that'd be quite cool too. Marnie, who would yours be? I think I'd like Henry Kissinger. would want to know all the politics, the whole world that, yeah, he was so influential and had so many famous encounters in politics. Can you imagine being Charles Dickens though and getting the phone call off Babbage? Could, did you mind? Do you mind nipping by my friend's house and just reading a read a bit about death to her? It's like what? Weirdo. But also, in those days, I can imagine them coming up. It would have been a really a really formal long scroll. Could you please come and <laughs> attend to talk about death? I mean, I'm, too, oh, I'm just doing it. I'm just telling someone about death. I'll be back back in half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> and whilst you talk, I'll just do laundry if you don't mind. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. A very famous crowd. But as a takeaway on Ada Lovelace Day, what key things do you think that we can learn from her? I would say push boundaries. Yeah, experiment. So don't be afraid to experiment within boundaries. Take calculated risks. And I think anybody can do almost anything if, if they put their mind and heart to it. It's finding that right level of support and network. So key takeaway for me is push boundaries. I think out of the box. I think, well, aside from have lots of really like, like famous friends, now I think I would, I'd, I'd, I'd probably say, you know, I love how it was her, it was this independent thought of hers that was able to take computing in the direction that it became. And it was by talking and expressing this independent thought and, and being allowed to do that, that's enabled, a, you know, a whole new path to open up within science. So. I think there's a thing about confidence. There's a thing about not being scared to express that confidence in what you know. I don't feel like learning about Ada Lovelace. I don't feel like she she was, you know, expecting to suddenly become some massively published and celebrated scientist in her lifetime. I think that's happened a lot since her lifetime. So I also think that, you know, she's she has found and been able to build on the thing that she already loved and knew so well in maths and science. So I think there's something to learn from that as well is you know do something you love and build on it yeah that, that's a great point do something that you love and enjoy and be great at it 
That was Himani Gupta and Gordon Co. Thank you both so much for coming on to the podcast today.